0: As we looked last week, you see in that video is that words such as richer and fuller and more content more satisfying these are words that really describe what we hope to be uh, our future uh, more than what we currently know. John chapter twenty verses um, thirty and thirty one uh, what we looked at last week is sort of john 's purpose statement for writing his entire book that we know of as John in the Bible in fact, if you have one with you, uh, I would ask you to turn to John chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have one with you, there uh, should be one in the seat in front of you. And if not, uh, or and if you don't have one at home, we would love for you to take that home as a gift. But in John chapter 20, he actually says, He goes, Look, I, I've had the opportunity uh, to live with Jesus literally for three years. Um, We know from history that that John then actually went out and for over 50 years, he was preaching that Jesus died and rose again before he wrote the gospel of John. And what he says there is that I've taken out of the storehouse of all of these experiences and things that I've seen and know to be true about Jesus, and I've selected only a handful of them. I've placed them in this gospel for this reason so that you and I, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, we might have life in his name, literally fullness of life, abundant life. And this is what God has for us. And so now we go back to the very beginning, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In a minute, I'm going to read it, but I think uh, we need to pray even before we do. So if you would, uh, let's bow and let's pray together. Father, as we uh, come to your word, uh, we believe that it's just that, that it is your word. And it says, it tells us that we don't have the capacity to apply this or even to believe it without your help. And so I ask that you would be our teacher, that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. That You would help us to believe and understand and apply this to our life. I pray, Father, that you would speak through weakness in myself and in each one of our lives. God, the competing distractions that that literally flood our mind in times like this. Um, God, I pray that you would help us to set those aside and help us to see Jesus in all of his glory and what that means for us today. I ask for help. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So each and every day of our life, we use words, don't we? We use words to seek to... To, to give meaning to what we feel and to what we see, to what we can touch, to what we can hear. And what's interesting is the more complex the object that we seek to actually explain, the more words we tend to want to use. So for example, if I told you, I want to ask you right now to go ahead and actually describe my blue sweater, right? Each one of us could come up with some things like, and if you majored in textiles, you might be able to talk about the history of fabrics and, and, and things like that. But for most of us, we would run out of words pretty quickly right? because a sweater simply is not that complex. We talk about color, we talk about fabric, and we talk about the size and maybe the warmth and things like this. But the fact is, is we would run out pretty quickly because it's a simple object. You add some complexity to that like, okay, now I want you to describe Brian Frost or your spouse, or a friend, your best friend, your child. And now all of a sudden you, you need more words, don't you? Because now it's not just a simple item. Now you're talking about things that you can see and things that you cannot see. Someone's physical body, as well as their personality, and their dreams, and hopes, and aspirations, and fears, and uh, giftedness, and, and their memories, and their experiences, and their education, and their relationships, and and... and We're more complex than a sweater. And so we need more words to describe. We'll add to that complexity. And you go up a notch or a million notches and you talk about God. If I told you, I want you to now to describe God for me. right? What happens is when people try to describe God, it usually takes a lot of words, which is why sermons go really long and why people write really long books about God. The reason is because... We know something to be true about God. We say, you know what? We know God is loving. God is love. I have a book, literally, it's about 1,100 pages, and the title is The Love of God. And when you open up this incredible volume, which I've never made my way through, though I do believe in the love of God, he, he starts at the very beginning, and he's almost apologetic. Now, I'm going to do my best here to really try, but, you know, it's going to be hard. And then he gets to the end, and he says, well, I tried, you know? But the fact is, is it even 1100 page cannot describe in depth the true love of God because it's inexhaustible. There's something about words that when used to describe God, they they tend to strain under the weight um, of which they're they, 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 like all the weight that we ask them to carry. And this is the amazing thing about the book of John. John has lived with Jesus for three years, preached about Jesus for at least 50 So he has a lot that he can say about Jesus. And what's interesting is that before he gets to a wedding, before he gets to a well, and before he talks about some things that happen on a mountain, and at a cross, and a tomb, John feels compelled to make sure that we know something about the person of who Jesus is and not just what he did. And so I find it absolutely remarkable that instead of a volume... The Apostle John chose 59 Greek words to tell us what he believed is the most important thing about who Jesus is. Now, I love this. One, because I love simplicity. But what I also love about this is is that it doesn't matter how smart you are or how young you are. You can know something true about God. You see, Even that which you may not know fully, you can still know truly. And so this is what John says of Jesus Christ in 59 Greek words. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. and Without him was not anything made that was made in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, you know, if you were here last week, is that as we work our way through John, is that I'm um, encouraging, we're encouraging us as a body to collectively memorize just a few verses. Right? And so each month, there'll be one memory passage, Right. And it's important to do this because God's word says, "Look, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you." There's something powerful when the word of God lives within our heart that we can draw from it in time of need. And so, the verses for January are John chapter one, verses one through three. Now, since this is the first week, and I don't want to overwhelm you, we may do this all the time because there'll probably be guests here each week. Is uh, I want to ask us to practice, okay? And so. Um, I've been gracious to all of us, and we have it on the screen here for for us. Okay, so there it is. And so, if you would, let's say this all together: John chapter one, verses one through three. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with me. All things were made through him, and without him, having meaning. That sounds so cool. That sounds amazing. So what can we learn from these three verses and then verses four and five? Three real basic things that I want to show you. The first is this, is that Jesus is the most unique man to ever walk the earth. Now, this this point is not rocket science. If you believe what he says here in the first five verses, you understand that he is the most unique man to ever walk the earth. But why I think this is really critically important is because John is going to call us to literally devote our entire life on the basis of the uniqueness of this man. He's going to tell us that this man has the authority to call the shots in our life, that this man, because of who he is and because of his uniqueness, it should literally steer and shape every decision that we make in life. And so it's really important for us to really understand, is this man really as unique as I'm saying that he is? And so what John does is he serves us in at least four ways in showing us how unique Jesus really is. The first thing that he says to us is that Jesus is the ultimate message of God. Isn't it interesting how he uses these words, in the beginning was the word. Now when we use the the word, the word, Right? A word is impersonal. A word doesn't breathe. It doesn't touch anybody. I mean, I mean, it can once it hits our mind and our consciousness. But the fact is, is, uh, I mean, this this sheet of words is not. It's not going to reach out and grab you by the neck. They're words, and yet he personifies these words for a reason. He says that the word was with God, and the word was God. And then when you get to verse 2, he takes out the word and he inserts he. So now all of a sudden, he's talking about the same person, but he inserts this personal pronoun that talks about there's a real living, breathing person who I'm talking about. So you have to ask the question, well, I wonder why he does this, and who's he talking about here? Now, the prologue, which is the first 18 verses in chapter 1, uh, is actually one thought, okay? Uh, it's going to take me three sermons to get through it, right? But, but it's actually one thought. And so um, if you read through the whole thing, he actually tells us exactly who it is. And so just look at verse 14 of chapter 1. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now look at verse 17. He tells us who this grace and truth came from. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So if that's the case, then why wouldn't John just say at the beginning, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God? And the reason he's doing that is not because he made a mistake or or because he's being poetic. He's actually telling us something that's true about God. And that is this, is that Jesus Christ is the final authoritative message of who he is. You see, you and I, we use words to describe ourselves, and God used the word Jesus Christ to describe himself. And what that means is that what God has to say to us about who he is can all be summed up in what Jesus said, who Jesus was and is, and what Jesus did And there's lots of passages, there's lots of verses that actually speak of the fact that there's lots of revelation from God, that he's spoken to us in a number of ways, but the Son, Jesus Christ, is the authoritative, it is the ultimate message of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says it this way, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son so let me offer you just a little picture so that maybe we can we we can we can see this concept even more fully after i get done preaching someone may ask you whether it's here at the church or perhaps at lunch or someone may call and they'll say hey how was church oh it was great uh what did he talk about And you'll probably be able to give some reference point, some sentence, an idea that was an accurate reflection of what is on this piece of paper, right? But the fact is, is no matter what you say, it probably would not be as complete. In fact, it won't be as complete and accurate to the original as the original. If you had this and you just read it, then you go, well, this is what he said. Here you go. Every day we use words to describe what we see and feel, right? You could do that. It's the same thing with God's revelation. We're told in his word that he's revealed himself in a number of ways. We have a Bible that's God's revelation of himself to us. You look up into the sunset and see the stars and the sun and the moon and beautiful things in creation. Psalm chapter 19 tells us that God is using creation to speak of his glory. It's a form of revelation. You look at the consciousness of a person. You look at the human hand, the complexities of life, and you go, wow, that speaks to an engineer, a designer, someone that's created all of these things. And every single one of these are pieces of the original. But what this is saying is this. Jesus is the original document. He is the summation of all revelation of God. He is the first and the final the authoritative, complete message of God. And so John says, this Jesus, he's the word. He tells us the message of God. He tells us who God is and how we're supposed to live in his world. It's interesting. He is this truth. The second thing that we learn about Jesus and why we believe that Jesus is so unique, the most unique man ever walked the earth is because he's the eternal son of God. In verse 1, you see three different phrases. He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, three of them. I want to go in order, one, three, and then go back to two. Okay, so let's start with the first. It's interesting, he says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, this should sound familiar if you've ever read the Bible from the very beginning. Every other gospel account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as we looked at last week, Every one of these, they begin with some reference point to Jesus' incarnation, meaning when he was here. They either start with his 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 birth narrative or an actual genealogy where you say, well, this is his parents. And, but in John, we don't find wise men, we don't find, we don't, we, we don't, we don't find shepherds, and 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 that it's not there. It's start. What's interesting is John chooses to start before creation. He pulls us back all the way before eternity past. He echoes the words of Genesis 1.1 that says, in the beginning, God. And here he says, in the beginning was the word. In other words, what he's saying is this, is that before creation, Jesus was. Now, the idea of something being eternal, in particular if it's a person, it just stretches our minds so far. There's an entire chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 90, where God speaks a lot about our life and how much time we have on the earth. He does so so that we would become wise. In fact, he actually tells us, he goes, look, you have a limited number of days. And so he prays. He says, God, would you teach us to number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom? Help us to see we're not going to be here forever. So help us to make the most of today. But the first five or six verses of Psalm 90, what he does is he anchors our short life to his eternal life. Because your life only makes sense so long as you see it in context against an eternal God. And so verse 2 says this, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From eternal to eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And what he's talking about here is he's going as far back in time and as far forward in time as the human imagination will allow it to go. And what the psalm is saying, what John is saying is this, is that were we to sit here and we to contemplate and think and imagine as far forward as we can in time and as far back as we can in time until our imagination would collapse with exhaustion, Jesus would be unapproached by any of our thoughts He never began, and he will never end. He's eternal. In the beginning was the word Jesus. Well, the second thing, or actually it's, this is the third, right, is, and the word was God. Now, that you may be visiting with us, and you might wonder, I wonder what they believe around this place called Providence actually I sang a song that has a lot of what we believe, but one thing that we want to make sure is this, is to let it be known very loud and very clear is that we as a people of providence, we believe Jesus is God, God. So when we get to passages like John chapter 20 and we find Thomas looking at Jesus and bowing at the resurrected Christ saying, my Lord and my God, we echo those same words when we see Jesus. In the pages of scripture working in our life, we say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my God. When we get to John chapter 10 and we see the Pharisees and these Jewish leaders and they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy because he's claiming to be God. We stand up as a body here at Providence. We say that's not blasphemy because he is God. He's God. Now, the second phrase is so important to John that he actually states it twice. He says it in the second phrase, and he says, and the word was with God. And then it's so important to him that he wants to personify it and give it his own verse. And so that's verse two. He says, he was in the beginning with God, with God. Now, this is an amazing thing, because Jesus is not only God, he has a relationship with God. And this boggles our mind. We go, well, that that doesn't fit. There's a a word in theology that we use. It's called the doctrine of the Trinity. You don't find that word Trinity in the scriptures, but you see places like this and countless other places where you find God referring to himself as one God with three persons, where he says there's God the Father, there's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit, each having distinct personal attributes, and yet no division in being or person or essence. And so Trinity, tri-unity, three and one. Now there's a lot of people that say, how do we, how do we explain this, right? Or, or some illustration of this. And the fact is they all break down because, because no amount of words can explain such a mystery. But the fact is, is this, this little graph might help you at least see at least a portion of it, right? In the middle, there's God, and there's only one God. And what we're told within the Bible is that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the, and the Holy Spirit is God. Yet we're also told that these three, that they are distinct in their, in their own, um, uh, like, like all of them have their own personal attributes, And what they're doing. It's an amazing thing. And so the father is not the son. The son is not the spirit. And the spirit is not the father. You go, well, how does that work together? Well, we'll have to take that out with him. I don't know exactly. But that is how he's communicated and revealed himself within the pages of scripture. And if you're reading through the Bible, you only have to get into one chapter. The first chapter in the whole Bible. Before this mystifies your mind. You go, wait a minute. There's a problem with pronouns there. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, this is what it says. God is speaking in verse 26. And so you see the quotes. God said, let us, us. Well, how many of them are there? Well, there's more than one. Let us, he says. It's plural. Make man in our image. And then there's an end of the sentence, period, quote, And then the writer of Genesis, he's going back and he's giving commentary to what God just did. And so when the commentary comes out, he says, so God created man in his own image. So we go from plural to singular. We look at God and we say, there's one God and God looks at us and he goes, you're right. There's one God and yet there's three. And what John is saying here is that Jesus Christ is the second member of the Trinity Next week and the next week, we're going to be introduced very, very strongly to the first member of the Trinity, God the Father, and then it won't take long before we're introduced to the Holy Spirit. And though this mystifies the mind, I beg you, providence, do not abandon it because your soul and your joy depend upon it. The reason Jesus can so effectively be the final message of God is because not only he is God, but because he is at God the Father's right hand. Do you see verse 18 of chapter 1? You don't. You're looking at me. But go ahead and look down at your Bible, okay? Look at verse 18. It says, "No one has ever seen God." That's God the Father. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he's made him known. And so he is so unique, the most unique man to ever walked the earth. Not only because he's the final message of God and the ultimate message of God, but also because he's the eternal son of God. And this is the mystery of the incarnation is that when he was here, not only was he fully man, but he was also fully God. The third thing that John tells us about Jesus, why he's so unique, is that Jesus is the creator of all things. Even before dying for us, we're told here that Jesus created us in the universe in which we live. He says all things were made through him. What this means is Jesus has creator authority. Okay? Now, all of us know what this is. Some of you are inventors or builders. It may be that you're a builder in the kitchen, right, where you're building a meal. The fact is, is you're starting with ingredients that you didn't create, and you're assembling them. If you build a house, and it's really beautiful, and you take wood, and you take copper, and you take concrete and sand, and you take a lot of other natural ingredients, and you bring it together, and all of a sudden you have this beautiful home. Well, you have creator authority over that home. Meaning, I can't say, you know, I like that better than my home, so I get it. No, you have created you created it, therefore you have authority over it we see what this is saying is that God has authority over your authority because God made the wood. He made the copper in the sand. You only took what he already made and pushed it together and said, Hey, this will work. So when John says this, what he's saying is this, is he has authority over everything you can feel and touch and see. So why does he go further and and, and add a second clause in verse 3? After the words, all things were made through him. I mean, that's kind of comprehensive, isn't it? All things are made through him. You think, well, okay, that kind of touches on it. We we, we get it. And all of a sudden, he adds this next phrase, which, to be totally honest with you, I always stumble over because it's just not how I talk. It, 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 it's... It, like it just doesn't ring in my head the way that some sentences do, and he says, "And without him was not anything made that was made." Now, why why would he add that? Well, I believe he would add that for this reason, at least one reason is because maybe he knew, or maybe because this was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're told in First uh, Peter that the Scriptures would be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Maybe he knew that there would be people who would come after who didn't believe that he was the eternal God, that God had first created him and then he started making things. There's people that will knock on your door even today and they believe that Jesus is not eternal, he is not God, though he did make what you know in the universe, God first made him. And so what John does by saying these words, without him was not anything made that was made. What he's saying is that anything that fits into the category of being made was made by him. So he couldn't make himself. He's eternal. He's creator. He's the ultimate message of God. And the last thing you see in verse 4, he says that Jesus is the source of life. Now, this is a beautiful thing to me. In verse 4, he says, In him was life. Sometimes we think that life began at creation, but that's simply not true. There was life before creation because Jesus was before creation and he was life. You see, some of you may not believe in God. For the atheist, how they come up with the existence of the world and the existence of your very life really is a creative thing. It's an amazing uh, idea. Um, It's wrong, but it's it's at least amazing. Um, What they believe is that everything began with this idea, this primordial soup of random, impersonal, lifeless matter and energy. Now, matter. What's matter? Matter is a scientific term that we use to describe anything with substance. And so this has matter. The stage has matter. The rocks are, have matter, right? So cells, skin, clothing, all of this is matter. And so what, 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 what they believe is, okay, long, 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 long time ago, actually billions of years ago, there was this random impersonal energy and matter that just existed. And then all of a sudden, over billions of years, with no creator, no intelligence, no purpose, or no plan, this pool of random matter and energy evolved into complex, interdependent living organisms and this amazingly mysterious thing called human personhood to where not only would, would, these, would these, this matter and energy form things, but it would form a thing that could pray and think and talk, that could dream, that could remember, that could hope, that could fear, that could love. And this is the atheist explanation for your life. Random matter giving rise to life. And John says, no, that's not how it went down. (laughs) John says random matter and energy didn't give rise to life. He's saying that life gave rise to matter that Jesus, the eternal living son of God, intelligently and purposefully created us and imparted life to us that originated with him. Now, if this is true, if Jesus is the ultimate message of God, the eternal son of God, the creator of the universe, and the source of all life, then he has the authority to inform your decisions this afternoon. And that gets us to the second point. Because so many of us, this Jesus is not informing our decisions. The second point that I want to show you here is this, is that we are fully alive only when Jesus is ruling in our heart. That you and I can only know the fullness of life that's available to us so long as we are yielded to Christ and enjoying the fullness that only he can bring. He says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. What he's saying here is this, is in light of the fact that Jesus is the most unique man who ever walked the earth, nothing should be so obvious as living in full consciousness of his authority and his nearness over our life. Nothing should be so obvious to us as we walk outside and we see a sunset or we see a sunrise, or we're drinking orange juice, or we're eating pizza, is that there was a designer. There was the source of life that was behind all that we know. That everything you see with your eyes, everything you can experience, the very fact that you're still breathing, it's all evidence that there is a creator who loves you. And yet, isn't it amazing how many Moments of our life, we are absolutely unresponsive to this God. If, if this first point is true, isn't it remarkable how many moments of our life we are not conscious of his nearness and his authority over our life? In moments of temptation, his promises and his his presence, they, they evaporate like fog on a hot day where we don't even acknowledge that he's near. And he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see, what has happened is sin. Sin comes into our heart as we make choices that are contrary to God's word. And what this does is it brings about a spiritual darkness and death. And this darkness and death, it literally floods over our own heart so that we become unresponsive and unimpressed with God. And so we see the sunset. And if we're distant from God and this darkness and death is is permeating us spiritually, we can look at a sunset And the finality of our evaluation of what we see is, wow, it's colorful. But that sunset is meant to put you on your knees. To say, there's a God who did that. When you eat a meal and it has taste from food that's come out of dirt. Life. And it tastes good. You shouldn't go whoo, I'm full, you should rejoice and worship him. Everything that we know in life, if Jesus is the authority, if he's the son of God, if he's the creator and the source of all life, then everything should be pointing our attention to him. And But when we become unimpressed and unresponsive to God, what that means is we reject his authority, and so we assume our authority. And that causes chaos. And Titus chapter 3, verse 3 tells us about the chaos that existed in our own lives before we came to faith in Christ. Titus 3, 3 says, We ourselves once were foolish and disobedient. We were led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is... This was some of our, this was all of our lives. There was a part in every one of our past that this verse, at least one of the words, describes. And you see, if, if you say, but wait a minute, I've never trusted Christ, but I'm living. You kept saying I'm dying. No, w- look, what I'm saying is this, is even in a state, we're alive, but we're not fully alive. Someone who's yet to trust Christ, God looks and says, listen, you're spiritually dark, yet you are physically living. You're breathing. You're talking. You can argue with me. You're, you're alive, but you're not fully alive. Not like God intended for you to be. And so what God did is what we couldn't. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. You see, the Bible tells us that God looked down upon us after we sinned. And he made a promise to send a redeemer. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus came to earth in order to love people who were morally bankrupt and spiritually dead. And he lived a righteous life. And yet he went to a cross to pay for our sin. He was buried in a grave, but then he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he extended to us an invitation. That is that if we would believe in him and his accomplishments on our behalf, that we would be forgiven of our sin. We'd be given his righteousness. And then there's a word that's used in John chapter 3 as well. Well, there's actually probably six places. It says regeneration. What that means is our heart is born again. It's made new again so that we can fully be alive. The fact is, though, is that you and I, we simply cannot make our heart alive, but God can. And he's promised to do it to those who believe in his son. But there's another sad condition. Truly, it's a sad condition when someone does not know Christ because they're unimpressed and unresponsive to God, even though he's put signs everywhere. There's another tragic reality that takes place in the world because it takes place in the lives of Christians who have already been made spiritual life. And that is that how many moments of our week, last week, were not lived in full awareness of God's authority and presence over our life. And as a result of that, we were not fully alive. How many of us are in a marriage right now that's fully alive? Or maybe that's not fully alive simply because we're not living under the authority of, And aware of the, consciously aware of the presence of God near us. You see, it's available. John chapter 10, he's going to tell us, I've come to give you life and give it abundantly. We're going to have to be really careful as we go through this year, not to assign uh, values to words that are not unbiblical. And one thing that you'll hear a lot, particularly if you love to hear people that preach on TV a lot, is you're going to perhaps be tempted to take this idea of fullness of life or abundant life and start thinking about, well, okay, that's a state of perfection on the earth, or that's a state where, where if I have enough faith, then I won't be poor, or I won't experience pain, or I won't, I won't have to walk through the darkness of this fallen world. And you, I just want you to know, some people have told you, you, know, you follow Jesus Christ, your life will be made easy, and that person lied to you. That's not true. We're following a man that was killed on a cross by people. And so if you're following Jesus, there is a possibility that people will treat you the way that he treated the one we're following. But the fullness of life that's, that's promised here is that even as we're walking through the darkness, of the fallenness of this world and the fallenness in our own heart is that we get to walk with the authority and nearness of God with us. And that there's a hope It's laid out in front of us. It says one day we will get to a place to where sin is totally taken away and pain and injustice. Our best life is coming, but it is not now. It is not. However, fullness is available even though so many of us do not regularly enjoy it. And I'm talking specifically to believers. You see, just as palm trees bend toward the sun, our heart bends towards worship. What this means is that, is that all of our heart, without, having, without forcing it to do so, it naturally worships. And so whatever part is not worshiping Jesus is still worshiping. It's just worshiping something else, and the Bible calls that idols. You see, anytime we're distant from God, anytime that we're distant from Jesus Christ... What the Bible says is that we, by default, we, be, we, we start worshiping. We get distracted and we start looking to the created things instead of the creator to worship. And so we start bending our heart towards money and towards pleasure and towards power and towards success. We'll even bend so far that we want a hero in our life. And so we'll have this fascination with celebrities, celebrity athletes and celebrity artists and actors. And if there is such a thing, celebrity pastors, it's a remarkable thing how far our fallenness takes us and how far our, our, our idolatry will actually go, that we would literally look at pastors and treat them like a celebrity. You say, well, why is that? Because Second Corinthians tells us that God looks into the pile of people that's called the church and he takes the lowliest of all of them. And he says, we'll make you the pastor so that everyone's convinced that has nothing to do with you. It's all about me. He says that he takes the lowly things. And so for us to assign celebrity to any single person and then wonder how they dance and, and what they eat and what they're wearing and, 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 and it's, it's called idolatry. Our heart is so hungry to worship And we're so far from the creator. And this happens to unbelievers and believers alike. And this is why, look, we can enjoy all these gifts. I I, I hope that you enjoy and give thanks for your pastors, right? I do. But your pastors and your money and your people and your pleasures and everything else, they're all ill-equipped to satisfy your soul. Another way to say it is Jesus alone has the authority and power to carry your hope. He's the only one that has the back strong enough to carry your hope. So questions for you. If Jesus is the point of life, has it been the point of your week? Did his authority and presence factor into your week, into your marriage, into your friendships, into your honesty, into your parenting? into the way that you sang to him this morning. You see, confronted with this in my own life, I desired growth. And so I just started to practice a little simple exercise this week that, that was helpful, to be honest with you. It was very imperfect because I kept messing up, right? But, but multiple times this week, multiple days this week, multiple times in every day, whether it was a meeting or it was doing this or this or this, is I would start. I'd say, okay, God, believing that you have authority over all things and consciously aware that you're near me, how should I respond right now? And what I can tell you is this, is that even in my per- imperfection in doing it, is that I believe all my heart that those who live conscious of Jesus' presence and authority are those that will live with the least amount of regret and the most amount of purpose. If this is true, that he is the most unique man, then your life can only be fully alive so long as he is on the throne of your heart. And that gets us to the last thing as we close down, is that those who are made alive in Christ can confidently share this life with others. See, this is an amazing thing when you get to verse five. He says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not overcoming What he's saying here is this, is that where Jesus shines, darkness flees. And this is the only hope that we have for our entire mission to providence. God's called us into existence to glorify him. And the mission he's set before us is to introduce all peoples in the world to Jesus Christ and growing them up to love and worship him. And we've sat down and we've said, now, how do we help people through this process? So we've come up with four basic words, connect, grow, serve, and go. Go. We want to help people to connect with Christ and to each other. We want to help people to grow in truth and love. We want to help people to serve, serve the church and our community. And then we want to teach people and to help people to go, to go into the city with the gospel and to go to the nations with the gospel. There's a team right now coming back from Uganda. There's a family who left yesterday, and they went to a closed country with the gospel where people were where there's some people there who certainly trust Christ, but the reality is it's a closed country. There's many, there's tremendous darkness there. So what gives us hope to be sending people like this? What gives us hope to say, you know what? There's a neighborhood in our own community that is so dark. Why would we go there? It's because we believe the darkness will not overcome Jesus Christ, that he has the authority over heaven and earth, and therefore we can go into places that are really, really dark, Because where Jesus shines, darkness must flee. This is good news, isn't it? Listen, it's available for you. Jesus is promising you a better tomorrow by yielding to him today than what you knew yesterday. And that's whether you know him as Savior and Lord or whether you trust him as your Savior and Lord today. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness and for your grace. Lord, as we... um, as we think about our life, as I think about my life this last week, Lord, there were definitely moments to where I was not conscious of your presence or authority over my life. And yet I believe this is true. We as the church family believe you are the son of God, the message. God, you are the creator and you're the source of life. And so this week we pray that you would help us to live in conscious awareness that everything is pointing to you so, Lord, it's a tremendous privilege that we have to worship you. And even now, God, I pray that you would help us to be consciously aware of you when we're singing, that you would help us to be consciously aware of your generosity and your provision, your promises to us as we give and take this offering. And God, I pray that as we leave this place, that you would help us to be consciously aware of your authority and presence as we interact with our family or our friends or waiters or waitresses, friends, co-workers this next week. We thank you for your kindness, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.